Dickens is fascinated by people and what makes them tick. A celebrated playwright whose work astutely portrays the marrow of Australian life in deft characterizations of our idiosyncratic lifeblood and the telling of tales tall and true. His talents extend to author, artist, actor, educator and journalist. His work is made up of acute observations and unique interpretation. Given titles that seem to bottle our essence with sublime perfection. The horror of suburban nature strips, the bloody terror of dentistry, bedlam autos and the banana bender. There is no doubting the immense contribution he has made to Australia's cultural life. Writing chiefly for the independent sector, his plays have seen life in iconic venues around Australia, such as La Mama, Theatre Works, St Martin's, Nimrod, La Boite and The Pram Factory. His work has also been featured on main stages at the Melbourne Theatre Company and Playbox Theatre. Biographical works riffing on the themes of Frank Thring, Brett Whiteley and Ronald Ryan have also received the Dickens pen. The Ronald Ryan story giving him the 1995 Victorian Premier's Literary Award. He also wrote a novel of Ryan, The Last Man Hanged in Australia. Most recently, he has examined the story of Sydney socialite and campaigner Juanita Nielsen. Dickens writes with inimitable wit, humour and lyricism, and has the ability to find the ridiculous and the jubilant amid pain. He is a true Australian legend, a great character of the theatre and life. It was a delight to chew the fat with Barry Dickens. When were you last in Sydney? Last in Sydney... Uh about three years ago, writing a draft of um, the Juanita Nielsen script and um, staying in Sydney as the guest of Currency Press, uh, who gave me a residency to write the play. And so I was living in Reservoir in Melbourne as the writer in residence for a theatre company, I mean, a theatre publishing house in Redfern. So alternating between Reservoir and teaching in Preston Reservoir. Well, you're very much a, um, a Melbourne icon. Can I use that word? Have you been no, described very, as you accept that? Well, I've had lots of descriptions. Um, um, who's had a career as, as a, um, a journalist and a poet and a teacher and, yeah. and as certainly as a playwright. So you, your life, your career has always been about words. Except for when I'm drawing. So the t- two oh. things I'm good at are right. drawing with charcoal or pen and ink. So I'm having some exhibitions of, in those mediums. Yeah. Or writing in all its persuasions, whether it's a poem or a song. Uh, I spent a couple of years writing an album. Uh, a friend of mine is Kim Gingell, who's a very good keyboard player. And a very good actor. And he now has commissioned me to write him an album, because in the last album he plays keyboard beautifully and cello, and he's a great musician. But he wanted to sing the next album, so I'm writing verses for my old friend Kim Gingell. Fantastic. So I, they're not financial wizardry, but they're things of passion and things I really want to do. And writing for Kim is yeah, straight out of the heart. Something light, something that suits his... He's got a band called Lay Club Foot. <laughs> and we've been friends for 45 years, so I'm going to keep him my friends. And then Nick Parsons has become a friend or a colleague because he's been the dramaturge on the Juanita Nielsen play. I've never met anyone like Nick. And that's saying something, because I've met some of the most brilliant people probably in the world. And I've never seen anyone who can rearrange a manuscript in the way that he has, where 
he's not forfeiting one of, he's not losing one of your words or syllables he's a fanatic to keep your style as it is but it's the arranging and tucking one scene into another or preserving a sentence or a sentiment at the start of the script and putting it perhaps in the epilogue or here or there and he's got a, a memory that is so we spent one day together rearranging with him rearranging everything in a way I really couldn't understand and then when you do a read through you see the good of it you see the it's like being healed <laughs> one of your most recent projects is the Juanita Nielsen story which had a play reading last year in Sydney um, it's a very Sydney story yeah um, when did you first encounter that story I mean well I was working for Double J right. which was the grandfather of Triple J radio station in 1975, which was the year that Juanita Nielsen disappeared on the 4th of July, American Independence Day. What a time to disappear. But I was working for Double J that wasn't far from the cross. It was in William Street. The offices and the transmission of Double J, Marius Webb was a commissioner, staff elected. Got me a lowly uh, paid job, but it was a great job because I was sorting mail, the internal mail of the ABC. In those days, that's where it was. And uh, I sort of broke into recording for Double J, doing some sketches, and started working with Kim Gingell then. And then on the 4th of July was the vanishing day of Juanita Nielsen. And I remember vividly looking down from Marius's office in Upper Forbes Street that ran into William Street, sandstone steps. And every lamppost in William Street going up to the big Coke sign had a picture of Juanita on a poster where is she? And uh, kids or students were using brooms and mops to glue up these pictures. So it was a huge uh, news story. It was, it was everywhere. Today, tonight. Uh, well, tell me, who was Winita Nielsen? Winita Nielsen was a socialite. She was a wit and a dandy and a model. And she was six foot two and incredibly beautiful looking from great money. Her father was from, owned Mark Foy's. The department store. So when she was 16, she was living at Monaco, Tangier, and having affairs and uh, collecting pythons. I mean, she's like something out of an Edward Lear. She's a true eccentric, uh, a gentle eccentric, but also fearless. And when she got interested in um, having met um, uh, people who were opposing the development of King's Cross. Her father had bought her a little house in Victoria Street, 202 Sandstone Terrace. And she started editing a paper there when she was in her 20s called Now Magazine. And she published articles, some of which she wrote herself, others she commissioned and paid for. They were not freebies. And Now became a very popular handout, like a freebie. And she took out advertising for that too. And then people were cautioning her not to run articles against uh, Tiemann, the developer. Frank Tiemann was the one who was developing um, uh, this. I don't know whether you've ever seen the drawings of Victoria Point, but it's like it's not just a development, it's like a city. And what was his plan was that all the terraces, the higgledy piggledy terraces of Victoria Street and Darlinghurst Street and Maclay Street, were going to be pulled down and then people were evicted. The police assisted in these evictions and uh, 
So there's a period when corruption was quite rife, I guess. Quite popular, too. In the New South Wales. Quite <laughs> popular. And Robert Askin was the one who used to drink with uh, Abe Saffron in the open. He was the uh, Premier? Premier, yeah. 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 But he was proved to be corrupt after his commission as Premier, but um, there, was, there were several commissions into the disappearance inquiries, I mean, and they were proved to be corrupt. So the inquiries, I mean, what wasn't corrupt? Yeah. And after the fact of his reign, as Premier Robert Askin was found to be corrupt. So the point is, the moral imperative, how can you run a commission or an inquiry when you've got corrupt police perjuring themselves or saying any old thing? And then you had police from Darlinghurst and organising and contributing to evictions. And this includes smashing down people's property. You won't believe what I'm telling you, but the police used to poison people's plants tip poison into their plants. I mean, can you imagine how that would feel when they're the very ones who are meant to help you? Yes, yes. And then I've seen horrifying footage of evictions with young girls being battened and booted onto buses that took them out to Mount Druid. And uh, there was a popular song in those days, the mid-70s, written and performed by a guy called Mick Fowler, who was a seaman. And there's some two, a snippet, a couplet, is before they even knew it, they were taken to Mount Druid. <laughs> so the poor things were bust out of what was home, which was Victoria Street and Darlinghurst Road, and with no say in anything. And just the fact, even if it wasn't the terrible murder and vanishing of Juanita, just about the evictions, I'd be really interested in staging a play about the horror of having mm. a home. Well, as a playwright, you know, obviously you do a great deal of research, and you, you know, you obviously. We're living in Sydney at the time yeah, that this happened. Right. But there's also a great deal of speculation about what happened to Juanita Nielsen. That's so right. How do you go about crafting a, um, a, a story, a play, right. with, with all of that going well, on? Well, I don't want to reveal any of my sources, which yeah. I couldn't do. But what I can say to your listeners is that uh, when she was 15, Juanita Nielsen posed for a payment for the cover, a lurid cover, of Carter Brown magazines. Carter Brown were pulp fiction in the 40s and 50s, terribly popular, Carter Brown. And she loved that sort of unsavoury film noir, or not film noir, pulp noir, whatever it's called. It was amazing for me seeing the photograph of her on the cover of a Carter Brown thriller. And she liked all that, I mean, she liked that kind of fiction. And then, w with respect to how things happen or how they play it out, it's it's like the fabric of a dream where I'm suggesting vis-a-vis -vis Carter Brown storylines, this may have happened, that may have happened, this may have happened, this could have happened. You know, it's all a mystery, meant to be a mystery, as opposed to theatre of, of fact and figure where you say exactly what happened. Um, my theatre never has suffered from naturalism. So it's a highly poetic delivery. And like in Shakespeare, you have unsavoury characters capable of, 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 you know, the most incredible sonnet you've ever heard. Mm. It's, un, it's just like life. That I've always thought that life is incredibly attractive because it's so unreasonable. How would you describe your playwriting then? Because it certainly isn't, a lot of it isn't naturalism. No. There is a poetic lyricism or it's, something. Well, it's meant to be it's a, a Moorish yeah. and attractive and delicious and in tidbits that you're getting a snippet of 
some delivery that you won't get from anyone else and an unpredictability of emotion where it can be silly and light and remote and elfin and then it's not it's not like that it all it's it's horrifying so that shifts like a tectonic plate and I and the trick is to never have the reader or the audience uh, expecting what's going to happen mm. <coughs> Uh, David Williamson wrote a play called Emerald City, which was all about the great rivalry between yeah. Melbourne and Sydney. Do you think that still goes on? Well, I once did an interview with David Williamson on Radio 3AW in Melbourne, and uh, whoever was driving the chair at four o'clock, I was Randall McDonald. Randall who used to be the editor of The Age when I used to work there, become a popular drive time. And then David had a, a new interpretation of The Club on, at the art centre, and I was in the lesser space having a brand new comedy about Fitzroy Football Club, and that was called Roy Boys. And our plays opened on the same evening, and we were old friends. I met David at the Pram Factory Theatre, and then we were getting on fine before we did the chat, I remember. And then Randall said something like, This was live to air to an audience of two million or something on Radio 3OW. Macquarie goes around the country and he said um, to the more famous of the two now David what's the difference between yourself and lesser luminaries <laughs> meaning a nobody like me yeah and Williamson shocked me by saying well Ronald I fill theatres and they empty them no yeah so was it on then <laughs> no I laughed in a way but yeah. it was it was cruel and it wasn't I mean that's that's how it goes in radio but uh, but I'm just saying, in the bar before that, he was, you know, really friendly. Yeah. And then. But there's all that professional rivalry, perhaps. But I thought it was a great remark. I fill theatres, and they, meaning me, empty them. <laughs> it's not true. I've always filled. You've always filled, absolutely. Yeah, I've never played in less than three quarters of the house. And uh, but that was an acidic remark. Mm. Probably it'll end up in a play. Let's go back to the very beginning, um, you grew up in working class reservoir. Yeah, in yeah with three brothers who I love very much, Chris, Rob and John. They're all artists, I grew up in a family of artists. Uh, I think I'm the least gifted of the four. And, uh, Chris is a brilliant actor, I'm a terrible actor. Uh, I had lived too much. Not very good at school, but when I went to high school, Marylands High School, which is a perfect tautology because it was so gloomy, I got a hundred out of a hundred for French, you know, to the amazement, the stupefaction of my parents. I was in love with the French teacher. Oh, wow. His name was Mish Tauschinskis. Motivation is everything. She was six foot six, the deep, deep, beautiful voice. So I never, never thought that I would love French, but I certainly did. And that was probably the beginning of my love of theatre, of just the sound of French. And language. And just, this is really beautiful, you know. Mm. Whereas with maths and science, I, on, my dad didn't believe that I tried hard, but I did. I tried hard to do things I wasn't good at, like maths. And dad would look at the report book, and his hands calloused, working as a machinist in a printing factory. And he can't believe how low the marks are. And he wasn't a mean guy, he was a gentle, friendly, honest, hard-working guy. And he said, you can do better than three out of a hundred, can't you? For maths, three. And you look here, French, a hundred. 
oh, I love French, Dad. Well, it's time you love maths too, boy. <laughs> she used to call me boy. And then art, 70, 80. Your parents sound wonderful. I've read some of your writings they about your mum and dad. I've and um, them. it's really touching. I mean, in fact, you know, with your mother's passing, you described it like the, the death of joy. I expect to see her every second. Yeah. And uh, Edna Dickens died four years ago. And uh, uh, I wrote a eulogy for mum that was published in the Age newspaper. And for dad. I did one too when I was a contributor to the Age newspaper. They're not having me anymore. Like... Fairfax has cut back on a lot of their contributors, but I'm really proud that those are, those essays were published because they were about the commonality of love. They were just, you know, written to show love for someone. Okay, okay. I've, I've got a, a quote yeah. here, if I can just yeah, read sure. it. My mother was a raconteur and my family were part of a theatre company and an opera troupe based at home. <laughs> the kitchen table was similar to a dark and labyrinthine painting by Caravaggio, where comedies and tragedies came to glowing life next to the leg of lamb and the tomatoes our dear father reared in the garden. Well, they were incredibly melodramatic as well as comical. <laughs> but we were pressured, Peter, to give an anecdotal account of the day when we were little kids at the table. We set the table, knife, fork, spoon across, whatever it was. The etiquette was really important. It was a Christian household without the bother of going to church. The, in other words, the ethics and the principles were of serving others that you shouldn't be very interested in yourself. So that was kind of the communist policy or the Christian policy. And yet if something bad happened to any of the children, then uh, there'd be no end of atonement. I mean, my father had a service pistol in the bedroom that he brought back from New Guinea. He once showed me that it worked by shooting a hole in our back gate. <laughs> So I said, what's that for, Dad? That's if anyone gets smart. That's what he said. If anyone gets smart, it works. Yeah, it kept yeah, you in your place. That's right. So I want to instance this protective father, who, who, who wasn't overprotective, but if someone sinned on one of his sons, what he saw, Len thought, saw as a sin, he'd fix them. And once I was hit hard at the church down the road, the Reservoir Baptist Church, I was bored with the lesson and fidgeting and playing the goat, acting the goat. And there was a Sunday school teacher there when I was about 10 who gave me such a whack and a left eye was just pushed right out of the black. And my brother John and I ran back home. And John was crying because I could see the blood coming out of my eye. And I tried to hide that from the old man going into the gate. He was out the front in his shorts doing his gardening. No, 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 come back here and look at me. Come and look at me. And I did, you know. And he said, well, who did that to you? Meaning the blow. And I said, I can't dob. Because that was a huge sin in our... Back Dob dobbing. Putting yeah. someone in, you, you'd rather be dead than dob. That was how it was. You just don't... Infer, even if you hate the guy, you know. You better tell me who he was. Oh, are you threatening me too, you know. I could always defend myself against him. I started crying to such a degree, I told him which teacher, volunteer Christian teacher. Yeah, I thought it might be him. So he put on his, got out of his gardening clothes. I'd never written this. And he went down to the church and he saw who it was. It was the seniors doing their prayers. Dad called him over to the corner. 
and he was pretending nothing had happened. He's the one who'd given me such a whack in the eye. So had you gone back to return with your dad? No, but no, this, I didn't want to dob him in, though, yeah. either. And that was a part of my Christian upbringing that you don't inform. But in the end, I did. And I suppose I wanted Dad to do something, but not hit him. And then uh, the old man said whatever he said. And then years later, I saw the same church elder on a bus. It was a hot day, and there he was. And I did not feel love towards him, I can tell you. Though all these years had gone by, I was, you know, white-bearded and 40-something. So did he cop one from your dad? No, I went over right. and I said, Mr King, his name was, I right. said, I've always wanted to ask you something. And he said, don't bother me. And I said, I do have to bother you because it's about freedom of speech. No, get away from me. I don't like your age articles. You're a communist. And I said, what did my father say to you? And you will answer me, sir. You will. You will answer me, I said. And yeah, that's about as angry as I can get. <laughs> and he said, your father said, if I ever touch you again, he'd kill me. And I said, did you believe that? I did. Oh, that was a nice moment. Nice moment. Was so that, that little snippet could be in a play. I could put that... Absolutely. There's nothing more passionate than a parent defending their child, is there? Has that happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is someone mean to you when you absolutely. were Absolutely, and Dad going in and, and just sorting it. the protector, yeah. Must have felt great. Yeah. So at some stage when I was about 16 and had left high school and, and had a dead-end job at, as an apprentice at Southdown Press, I, Dad had got me a job at Southdown Press owned by Rupert Murdoch, and I was the rinser down of guillotines. That was my job. Can you imagine? You're just covered in thick grease all, uh, all day and just the repetitious boredom of it. I was also the lunch monitor and had to do lunch orders. It was just this terrible factory job. I did it for two years and then I joined a photo engraving company and I learnt photo engraving and photographic reproduction, touching up photographs. And then I went into copywriting and was taught how to write copy when I was 18. What were um, the influences in Reservoir that shaped you as, a, as an artist? I'd say just looking into people's faces, wanting either to draw them or write about what that looked like. And then when I was young, I used to say to people, and this never got me into any trouble, I'd say in the politest possible way, would it be okay if I drew you? Now I wouldn't do that now, because most people wouldn't allow it, but in the 50s, if they weren't busy, yeah, I'll sit for you, you know, sit on their front fence and you draw them, you know, just like Van Gogh drawing the postman. <laughs> and then one enterprising idea I had was to make a million pounds by drawing Christmas cards in the manner of Rembrandt huh. and trying to sell them around the streets of Reservoir for a pound each. I sold 12, not a bad effort. Um, and you ended up drawing cartoons for the age. Yeah, I was an age cartoonist, Herald Sun cartoonist. 30, 40 years of my life was articles for the Herald Sun and the age. I wrote for both papers. And then about three years ago, uh, the whole of writing for newspapers stopped and I had been assaulted by police uh, and strip searched by police in Ligon Street, Carlton the most shocking thing that ever happened to me and um, 
and wrote an article about how that felt that was published in the age and then senior police authorities and police bureaucrats made out that I, that hadn't happened, that I'd made it up. But it had happened and that's why I wrote about it. Although my son Louis cautioned me not to write about it, you could see the future. You can't criticise police. So that went to court. I was charged with perjury, which they dropped. And, uh, but I was found guilty of making a false statement, which wasn't. It was an honest statement to reservoir police. I just told them what they'd done to me. And I was so naive, I thought the police would write me a letter of apology. And the very ones that I sought help from, uh, the cons not the consorting squad, but whatever they were, they came to my flat and thought they were going to kill me. So since then, I haven't written for the papers. But I'm writing for the theatre. I've got a new book coming out next to you. So I never give in. No. Um, but, but I should, I think. <laughs> Maybe I should give in. Oh, no. I mean, it's a pretty small thing to come up to Sydney and have a reading of a play. It's not a season. It's, I've had seasons of popular plays in Sydney and unpopular plays, but it's not like, you know, it's economy flight, two nights in the hotel. It's as hard as that, but that seems... Because of my poverty, that seems generous. So, um, do you write daily? Is that this new book I've been writing every day, and that's to do with a lot of interviews I've been doing. I work for a publisher called Hardy Grant in Melbourne. I put out seven of my books. The most popular of which was an account of um, recovery from depression. It's called Unparalleled Sorrow. I pinched that title of my mother because she once described Reservoir as Unparalleled Sorrow. His dad had asked her what, what she thought of it. She came from Leafy Carlton, so she said, unparalleled sorrow, and I pinched that. Your mum suffered from depression also, yeah, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, it's sort of a needless depression, in my opinion, because really she was an entertainer. And we, what Chris gets from Edna, what I got, what all my brothers have got from her, was this love of entertaining people. And then what she should have done with her life is go on stage. She was a showgirl. She should have, you know, she should have done that. And quite humorous too. I mean, is that, that, that story of apologising to the sausage That's for That's the best part. <laughs> to kneel down and apologise so sincerely to a sausage for having burnt it and hemorrhaged it. She said, I'm so sorry, sausage. I can't really ever forgive myself. And John and I were little kids doing poos into the poo bucket when she did that. And John said, she... Look, she's apologising to a sausage. I mean, it is funny. A born entertainer. She was. Mm. She was. So it's a mixture of growing up in a sort of house at Vaudeville, which Chris and I did. I mean, he's, he gets me in hysterics just by pulling a face. He's a great comedy de latte. He's played Alecchino. Uh, I cried with approval when I saw Chris's Alecchino. Well, Chris was also in your the, the first play that you, you did yeah. a translation of Ghosts. That's right. And you performed in it as yeah, well. Yeah, I was you? terrible. <laughs> Chris was good, and I wasn't good. I was ad living too much, and Chris had learnt cut his teeth at Rusden. Chris was a very good actor. I wasn't. I could get people laughing, but I was, you know, ad living. So why why was that your 
What's the motivation behind doing a translation of Ibsen's Ghosts? Just for the fun of it, to, to, to Australianise it, to reservoir it. Had you had hopes of being a playwright, or was this no. just an exercise? I was influenced by Chris's success, and I used to go and see Chris's plays at Rusden, at the Alexandra Theatre, and what's the other smaller space there? Uh, this is it Monash? 400 chairs. Yeah. But Chris has had his plays at the Alexandra, which you got, you know, a thousand chairs. And he was a very good actor, as I said. And I'd see him just so at home, making people laugh on the stage. And whether it was a monologue as Alakino or or doing handstands, I mean, was where was Ghosts presented? At La Mama Theatre. Right. La Mama is in Carlton, a fifty-seat theatre that was burnt down earlier this year. And then the um, the government, the Labor Party, have put a million into it. They're going to rebuild it. Well, it's been the birthplace of so many great players. Williamson. Practitioners. David, yeah, that's right, David Williamson. There was La Mama, and then there was the Pram Factory. So alternative theatre was La Mama. If the show was any good, the executive would pick it up from the Pram, which was around the corner. The Pram Factory was in a Pram factory that made prams for children. It was a children's Pram factory. A friend of mine named John Timlin got the lease in 1970 and turned it into a theatre where hundreds of plays had their birth. Williamson's plays. And then the MTC was starting to get rivalrous towards the pram because we were pinching their audiences. Getting 250, 300 people a night. More outrageous stuff than the MTC was doing. So it it was a great... um, It fostered a lot of your work, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. I was never a part of the collective. But, I, like for example, Chris and I, 1970, had our teeth removed at the Royal Melbourne Dental Clinic, and I wrote a comedy called The Rotten Teeth Show. And poor Chris had troubles with his gums. He had to stay in overnight. This is Christmas Day, can you imagine? And I wrote a comedy about losing all your teeth, dental extraction and cross-examinations in bizarre courts and... A lot of Lewis Carroll influences. Well, looking at a list of your of uh, the plays that you've written, you capture, in my opinion, a, an Australia of old. They couldn't be anything but unique celebrations of our culture. You That's know. right. Plays with the title like Reservoir by Night, Butte Land, <laughs> Eat Your Greens, Eat Your Greens, The Rotten Teeth Show, yeah. The Ability to Eat Crow. The Ability to Eat Crow. Is a yeah. Great title. Yeah. My young son Louis is my favourite person. He's twenty three genius with titles. He just dreams them up on the spot. So I've probably written about 30 or 40 plays that have either been hits or they've had their season. I've never had to bump out early, which is just great. How do you get your ideas for plays? It's through some tiny incident usually. It, It could be someone in the street in a particular situation. It could be, what does T.S. Eliot say in The Wasteland? some infinitely suffering thing. I think mean, that's the most beautiful line I've ever heard. You're not so, what, what's causing the pain of the cessation of pain? Some infinitely suffering thing. So grief and torment are a big part of the scripts. Uh, but also... There's uh, a great sense of justice and morality oh, too yeah. in your works, I think. Yeah, that's right. And I'm nearly always the fool in the, in the scripts. You know, I like to be the fool and the one who doesn't know not the one who's telling you anything that's right. When I've taught in schools, kids say, do you know, 
a lot or nothing, Mr. Dickens. I know nothing. Yeah, let's just should be going by the look of you. <laughs> Have you explored many screenplays? I've written plays with uh, screenplays with Paul Cox, right? Who's now deceased, but he gave me six or so commissions to write a woman's tale, and that was nominated for an AFA award, AFI award, nineteen ninety nine or not something. I wrote lots of films with Paul Cox. His great film, of course, Man of Flowers. Yeah, well, I was in that. Yeah. As an eccentric postman. <laughs> now, Tony Llewellyn-Jones, who's fantastic in this, this play about Juanita Nielsen, I've been with Tony all day in the rehearsal room. He came round to my place when I was married years ago in Collingwood, and he looked really upset. I've known Tony 50 years. And he said, I wonder if you could help me out. A film called Man of Flowers needs an insane postman, would you do it? I said, let's have a script. So he, Sarah, my ex-wife, opened up some wine and we drank some wine and did a table read in our home in Collingwood. There's three pages of unlearnable dialogue, this loony postman, and, and I agreed to do it. And then Sarah was helping me learn it. I've always had a lot of trouble learning lines. In the morning, I got a taxi down to New Street, Brighton, to the home of Asher Blue, a friend of Tony Llewellyn, and uh, and the film was shot there in, at that mansion. And what I have to do is come in as the postman on a bike, old PMG bike, with the cobalt blue shirt and everything, and pretty chubby. I'm still chubby, 31 I was, and go into this spiel written by Bob Ellis and John Hepworth, because Norman Kay, who won an AFI award for that is talking to himself and saying, here comes my old friend Alan, the postman. He's a font of information. I'm not. I'm just a moron delivering the payment. And then we go into this unlearnable dialogue and it turns out the postman is obsessed with the Queen's comments about the weather because the Queen used to talk about the weather a lot. And I learned it and did it. And that's how I met Paul Cox. In one take, it was. Had to be used again and again. No, we, we had one a, take Dickens. Had a slight difference because Tony Llewellyn was producer of Man of Flowers, which went on to win every prize. And then he'd offered my agent, John Timlin, $200, which in 1982 was even, well, wasn't worth thinking about. You know, and so Timlin said, after I'd done it, he said, he said, I won't sign the release form unless it's 3000 And it's too much. No, it isn't. So the next thing was, they sent an express form over and Tim and I had half each, 1,500. That felt just. Yeah, three. it's a huge percentage for an agent. It was, yes. but I didn't think I was getting anything. So. You've written several uh, biographical plays exploring the lives and psyches of various prominent and sometimes controversial Australians. People like Frank Thring, Brett Whiteley, Ronald Ryan, yeah. Joan Sutherland, Squizzy Taylor reminiscences. What is it about these folk that encourages you to, to bring them into the public consciousness? Because I hear stories about them. I hear stories about them in a taxi. Like I heard lots of stories about Squizzy Taylor once in a taxi uh, in 1970 when I was doing my Diploma of Education. I had a girlfriend who lived out in Richmond. I picked up a taxi on a rainy night outside Myers in Melbourne and this guy knew Squizzy. He had driven Squizzy to St Vincent's Hospital. We should explain Squizzy Taylor. Squizzy, Melbourne's early gangster. most famous gangster 
he is the Abe Saffron of Melbourne. I mean, that's the equivalent of his notoriety and bra the same brazenness as Abe Saffron and the control of Abe Saffron, you know. I mean, Squizzy Taylor was... Anyway, I met this taxi driver who knew, who knew everything about him and he was just talking to me, this old taxi driver, as he drove me to my girlfriend's place. And, uh, and then I started thinking, I want to write about Squizzy Taylor. But it's, this guy's telling me everything that can become a play. It's like when I met lovers of Frank Three, and I thought, why not write, write about it while these people are telling me the stories? And I met a woman once in St Kilda who'd been through the camps, had the Auschwitz tattoos. Everybody has a fascinating story, don't they? Everyone's got a story, yeah. yeah. I once did an interview with Lionel Rose for the Age newspaper. Uh, Aboriginal boxer. Aboriginal, yeah. for your listeners one of Australia's most famous lightweights. He'd won, he'd beat Fighting Harada in Tokyo in 1968. And I was friend, not friends, but friendly with him. And the age wanted an interview with him. And I went down to his home, so I knew his brother Michael. And, uh, and then all of a sudden Rose wanted $500 for the interview. No go without the 500, you know. I didn't have it, the photographer did. And I, my first question was, I said, Lionel, everyone's got their moment. What's yours? He used to call me Whiskers. Well, Whiskers, when you think about that, he got an old battered wallet out of his pants, flipped it on the tongue, dusty old wallet, and all the dust motes came off it. And in it was a telegram from Elvis. And on the telegram was, can't wait to see it. And he says, he's the most famous man in history, and he's hanging out to see me. Elvis Presley? Yeah. That's when Lionel had won the world championship. That's my moment. Well, had he been, um, you know, Las Vegas is a boxing central. Was he yeah. boxing there? Well, he beat a guy called Fighting Harada in Japan, and that was, right. if you ever see that bout, it was a, that's what made him world champion as a lightweight. And then after that, he was everywhere. He was yeah, boxing yeah. at casinos and things. Tell me about your uh, your work with about Ronald Ryan. Well, it's the same thing. I met people that knew Ronald Ryan, the last man hanged in our country, and I I met Father John Brosnan, who was the Catholic priest at Pentridge Prison in 1992. And the only way to study the life of Ronald Ryan is to listen to stories. I didn't want to. I read everything you could. I read his trial, it's nearly 2,000 pages. Uh, I interviewed hundreds of people, people that lied that they knew him, people that really did know him. And that was called Remember Ronald Ryan. And then I was inter I interviewed the governor of Pentridge Prison. His name was Ian Grimlay. I used to go to the Grimlay's home and have Sunday dinner with them. So it's an unconventional way of study. It's not you know, history-driven, fact-driven. It's from people's teeth and what they're saying and, what they, and why they remember things. So that's why so many of my plays have to do with the art of memory and how memory survives. Memory is a fascinating thing, isn't it? How because it survives. we all have our own memory and yeah. sometimes it's great conflict between what you remember and what I remember. But I think it's good that things are remembered differently and then with Juanita, I've got so many versions of what could have happened 
it's like a thriller for the audience. And I'll say, well, this happened. But and these, you're just offering one take on a particular story? One interpretation. I'm not, there are no answers. It's like the Ronald Ryan thing, you know. I, I really believe that he didn't fire the shot that killed George Hodgson. Uh, I've seen the rifle that he used, and forensic tests prove it didn't fire. So once the police and the jail authorities knew the gun didn't work, why not drop the case? But the true political truth was that Henry Baldy could see he'd win the election if they got rid of Ryan. So John Larkin, it's a man, John Larkin, that your listeners probably haven't heard of, but in my early years, he was the most influential critic in the theatre. He wrote for a paper called The Sunday Press, went out to an audience of a million and a half or something. And if you got a good review from John Larkin, you filled the seats. The Pram Factory, La Mama. He had that much power. He's a very good prose stylist. But he once reviewed one of my plays called The Banana Bed as... Um, what was it? The song was... Um, uh, something to do with the... Un- I'll get it in a second, but it's something to do with what... No matter what you set up, it's it's the fates. The fates are going to be completely different. Um, the unimaginable. It's the defeat of the desperate by the bizarre. So the bizarre circumstances conquer the protagonist. No matter what you conspire in life, it's not going to be like that. So I love that critique. The defeat of the desperate by the bizarre. You can't see what's coming. No, not at all. How can you? No one's prophetic. So Larkin got it. But uh, it's such a drug. I mean, writing for the th- oh, today, um, seeing you, which I've been really looking forward to, just seeing actors work on your lines in their way, their magic, uh, it's no longer typeset, it's no longer printing, they're not pages. It's, it's, it's human breath. It's coming to life, isn't it? It's human it's breath and human teeth. And Arnie Nemi, who I've just been watching, blocking it today. Uh, genius. Uh, blocking is something I couldn't understand, something Chris was good at and learnt at Rusden. But it, it changes everything. How someone suddenly kneels, like the detective in my story is also the narrative narr- narrator named Dickie Nugget. He's trying to find out when Eta has gone. There's flashbacks to when they were lovers and all that. And then what I just saw before we got together was uh, Arnie Nemi talking to a very heavily built actor, who's very good, and saying, could you just drop onto your knees because it's an assault scene and I, we won't hurt your knees. We could even put pillows there, but we want the thump of your knees as if you're being assaulted. So though it's a reading, it's a move reading. He's not just having actors reading of pages, he's having action. Are you a practitioner who easily lets go of of your work? I know. Handing when, it over to I actors and to directors. Yeah. And I know when I'm when I'm in company of brilliant people. And that's a groovy feeling just to let go and not hang on to anything. Because I might say, here they are enshrouded by darkness or some similar hopeless <laughs> stage direction and Arnie was saying what's this no they're not let's have this happen so I love interpretation well theatre's a collaboration isn't it yeah. it involves the contribution of have you ever read Pablo Picasso's plays 
No, I didn't know he, no, he, he wrote plays. Yeah, the four, four Little Girls was a great script. But he loved flirting with the stage directions. In French, you see, uh, he's, Pablo was written here, comma, the stage is marvellously filled with pink ice. And you think, how is it? I mean, how do you fill a theatre with pink ice? But he felt like saying that. So. But it gives your director and your actors something to You can just begin them with. saying pink ice, he wants pink ice. <laughs> Have you directed plays too? Have Absolutely, you? yes, yes. Mm. And um, I find it very exciting to take the written word and to put that onto the stage. Right. Through imagination and collaboration. The Frank Thring script yep. earlier this year, I'm keen to show that to John Derham. John Derham is a fantastic actor. And, um, you know, these people are nearly 80. They're 79. Tony is 79, Llewellyn. And they've just got so much oomph. And uh, so John Derham has just finished a one-man play on Peter Finch. All right. That he's written himself. Yeah. Right. So you think 79, it's time to slow down. Never. Maybe it's time to speed up. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to be old. You don't have to say, you know, I've had the gong and watch TV and drool, or dibble, dribble. You can get out the pen and write something. Who were the playwrights that have influenced you or that you admire? Carol Churchill, my favourite writer, with Cloud Nine being at the apex. When I first saw Cloud Nine was in New York, the gender comedy, where the genders are reversed and it's equatorial Africa. And I was ill. I saw it as off-Broadway. Uh, it was just so shocking and so true. And I don't think anyone would run that play now. It's, it's, it's cruel and just in equal measure. And, and it's obscene and true because it's obscene. Well, I had a production at the Sydney Theatre Company a couple of years ago. Did you? Ago. Was yeah, it yeah. any good? It was great. Yeah. The characters in that comedy and then uh, but she's a writer also that doesn't write in naturalism she certainly has that, that a friend of mine is a guy called Wilfred Last Wilfred's about 80 now and he's in Melbourne he's directed my plays in Sydney for the Nimrod and Belvoir Street and uh, he once directed a production of a different Carol Churchill play which was called A Light Shining in Buckinghamshire that's set in the 14th century peasant life in the village Wilford did that at the back theatre of the Pram Factory. I went to see it. And it was so morose and so gloomy and so good. There's one scene in it where it's just done with spills of light. And you hear a village brook gurgling, sort of, like Gilbert and Sullivan, a little brook of gurgling. And you see there's an actress named Sue Ingleton who had a doll and she's kneeling in the darkness and the light comes up. It's a blue spill, a blue gel. You don't know quite what she's doing, but she's drowning her baby. That's what she's doing. Because she can't feed it. And another woman, played by a friend of mine named Ursula Harrison, standing up with her arms folded until the light comes up properly. You hear the water gurgling. This tiny scene I've never forgotten. And And Ursula says to Sue, why did you have a baby? Long pause, no sound in the audience, so shocking. And Sue says to oppress it. Slow fade to black, and I thought, God, that's good. That's how you feel, to oppress it. There's only four or five words in the scene. It's just 
Well, like, like, like we used to have a saying called gut bucket, where you just, you can't speak. You, uh, you're so taken, you can't yeah. speak. Well, I guess that's the challenge of a playwright too, the economy of words. And when they're used. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't, mm. don't be too verbose. It's like what? in the, the um, Breaker Morant, the, the, this great scene, Jonathan Hardy is a friend of mine who wrote the screenplay with some other people, I think Bruce Beresford or whatever. But there's a scene when Breaker knows that in the morning he's going to be shot, played by Edward Woodward, Edward Woodward. Fart in the bath. <laughs> Hard to pronounce. <laughs> and he knows he's to die in the morning and there's a, a young actor goes up to him, or a young soldier on the Transvaal and dawn is breaking and they're going to shoot him at dawn with Brian Brown. They're both going to get shot. And uh, it, Woodward is... couldn't care less. He got all, lost all respect for the Australian infantry and the British. He knows he did his duty. And the guy, the guy goes up to see him is just washed out about what's going to happen. He said, you, you could have seen the world. And then Edward Woodward says, I've seen it. And then I, it's like the Sue Mingleton moment. It's almost like, this is, this is where I want to go with, not slabs of talk, but pithy. Just the perfect words. At the right moment, yeah. yeah. And you get the crowd overwhelmed. That's what I want to do. Barry, it's been fantastic. Thank you for oh, sharing this, right. this hour with you're me. You're a great interviewer. I've got <laughs> really enjoyed well, it. Well, you're a great topic. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, you, you're, you've contributed so much to um, theatre in Australia with uh, capturing a, a unique voice and, well, it's and idiosyncrasy. It's very up and down where I've had my share of tears and um, I've had terrible reviews in Sydney as, which have put me off the map as well as five-star ones where, where my plays have run for six weeks or something. So Robert Love, who runs this place, really liked the script. This is Parramatta Riverside. Yeah, so he's a saint to me. Yeah. It's just, you know, to all your listeners, and if you're writing of either gender, whatever you are, don't stop. Because the rewards are too great. Just pick up a pen and write. You don't have to give up. Yeah. I don't think you need to give up. That's the point. Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka, our hosting platform. And please take the time to rate and review. The podcast is in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Catch you next time on Stages. Stages.